The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. The title of the article was King, the nickname that comes with a steep price. He goes on to write, he says, Some nicknames are easy to live with. Lefty, for instance. Unless something terrible or tragic happens to a guy named Lefty, Chances are he'll remain lefty for his entire life. Or a nickname like Murph or Red. King, however. Now that's a nickname that can also be a milestone. Whether it's your idea or someone else's to give you that nickname, King, the moment you agree to it, the moment you don't say, really, King isn't necessary, then that's one heck of a nickname to live up to. Elvis, of course, was the original and forever king. Years later, Michael Jackson elbowed his way into the king of pop. Today's kings entered the world as Felix Hernandez, who's a baseball player, and Henrik Lovequist, a hockey player, and LeBron James. All of them could have gone other ways, of course, not having king as their nickname. Lovequist does go by Hank, and Hernandez could easily have been called the Cat, and James actually has three other nicknames, which is LBJ, Bron Bron, and the Chosen One. And he says, seriously, if you answer to the Chosen One, then King doesn't seem like such a profound leap. This article highlights America's Profound preoccupation with designating people as king. It goes far beyond sports. It goes into the music realm. He already mentioned Elvis and Michael Jackson. But Sam Cooke is known as the king of soul. Bob Dylan, the king of folk. B.B. King, the king of the blues. Pavarotti, king of the high sea. Kenny Loggins, king of the movie soundtrack. George Strait, king of country. You can also go outside of sports and music, and, and we crown prom kings. We have a beer that claims, to be, that claims to be king of the beers. And of course, my favorite, there's Burger King, right? Many of our wildly popular fictional books, our fantasy books, that talk about the reign of a king. And so with this great fascination with kings, the question presents itself, why is it that we are obsessed with kings? And I would propose that we are obsessed with kings because we are created with a deep longing in our heart for a king. And like a leaky hose, if you cover up that king desire in one place, it will spring up someplace else. C.S. Lewis, who's a theologian and author, put it this way. He said, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they will honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. For spiritual matters, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. What Lewis is saying is that our spiritual nature demands a king. And if we don't crown the right person king, then we will crown the wrong person king. 
even if it is poison to our souls. If this is true, if this is true that all of us crown something king in our life, whether we acknowledge it or not, then it means all of us are under the dominion of someone or something. Rebecca Pippert put it this way. She said, whatever controls us is our Lord, or you could say king. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. Whomever or whatever controls you is king. And unless you have the right king, your soul will starve for more. And so here on Palm Sunday, our focus is on dethroning all the other kings of our hearts, all the other kings of our life, and crowning the one king once again that will satisfy our souls. If you will, please open up to Luke chapter 19. If you are in the Red Bible, it is page 878. If you're in the Children's Bible, it is page 1131. If you have been around Jacob's Well this semester, you know that we have been hammering on this idea of kingship as we have walked through 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, we see the people reject God as their king, and they raise up this man named Saul to be their king. After Saul comes King David. After King David comes uh, king Solomon, and then the kingdom is divided, and the northern kingdom has 20 kings, and the southern kingdom has 20 kings. Some of the kings are good, some of the kings are very wicked, but all of the kings of Israel leave the people wanting more. All of them leave Israel waiting for a future king, for a final king, for the king of kings. And Palm Sunday is a reminder that he has come. And so let's read together Luke chapter 19, verse 28 through 40. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen, that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Palm Sunday is one of the few accounts of Jesus' life that is in all four Gospels, which means it is critically important to his ministry and to our faith. 
And it's important because Palm Sunday signifies the coming of King Jesus, not simply as a king, but as the king. And so as we dive into John chapter 19, excuse me, as we dive into Luke chapter 19 here today, our goal is to discover what kind of king Jesus is so that we can convince our hearts once again to dethrone all other kings in our life and to crown Christ king over all. And so first we want to look and we want to see that Jesus is the promised king. Let's reread verse 28 through 34. And when he had said these things, Jesus, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, Jesus is in the middle of a long journey towards Jerusalem. It is a homage he is making to Jerusalem for the Passover. And when Jesus is two miles out, he stops the parade, the procession of disciples around him. And he sends two of his disciples into the town to go and get a donkey. Here it's called a colt, which means a young donkey. And a foal means a, a young donkey that's typically under a year of age. And in his simple direction to his disciples, Jesus demonstrates his omniscience, meaning his, his all-knowingness. Jesus knew that in the village there would be a donkey tied to a tree. Jesus knew that it would be a donkey that had never been ridden upon. Jesus knew that someone was going to come and ask, why are you untying it? And Jesus knew the answer, the Lord has need of it, would be enough for that person. Now, what's so interesting about this is why does Jesus stop this journey to Jerusalem? Why does he stop two miles out and send his disciples in to go get this donkey. Was he tired? Could he not finish the walk? No. Jesus stopped the procession to get a donkey for him to ride in upon because Jesus was making a declaration. You see, the donkey symbolized a promise from God. It's not as clear here in the Gospel of Luke, but in the Gospel of John, we read about this. It says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. You see, this was written that the coming king would come in upon a donkey. It was written back in Zechariah 9.9, which was written over 400 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And John goes on saying, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. To give you a little bit more background on this book of Zechariah, this prophecy of Zechariah, the book of Zechariah is written to a people the people of God who had returned from exile to Jerusalem, a people who wanted to rebuild the priestly system, the temple, the worshiping community, and they were greatly discouraged because of the military opposition to their work. 
In Zechariah chapter 8, the Lord promises his brokenhearted but beloved people a future peace, a future prosperity, a future salvation. In Zechariah 9, it tells us how God will deliver these promises through a promised king. And then in Zechariah 9, 1 through 8, it explains that this coming king will be a warrior who will judge and crush and destroy Israel's enemy. And then you get to Zechariah 9, 9. And we learn of how this, this glorious promised king would make its entrance. In Zechariah 9, 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, talking to Israel. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus wanted to come into Jerusalem mounted on a donkey, mounted on a colt, because Jesus was declaring himself the promised king, the long-awaited messianic king, righteous and possessing salvation. Now you may say, you know, Jesus riding in on a donkey, that doesn't prove anything more than Jesus thought he was a king, which is true. Anybody could do that. Anybody could, could, could have a donkey and come into Jerusalem on a king. But what always gets to me are the other prophecies, you see, there were several prophecies in the Old Testament talking about what the future king would look like, who the future king would be. And they weren't general prophecies like the king will have 10 toes or he'll have wavy hair or he'll be tall. But they are very specific prophecies, prophecies that Jesus would have no control over. Prophecies such as he will be born in the little bitty town of Bethlehem. Prophecies such as he will come up out of Egypt Prophecies such as he will be a descendant of David. Prophecies such as his clothes will be, lots will be casted for his clothes. He will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. None of these things are things that Jesus could have controlled. Each of these prophecies were written over 400 years prior to the coming of Christ. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. Now, the reason why this is important is because Jesus knew that many would come to claim and claim to be king. Jesus knew that we would be skeptical that he was the one true king. And so all of these prophecies were given that we might identify who the one true promised king is. Let me give you this example. Imagine you are at a show at the Meyer Theater and the announcer comes on the speaker and says, if you own a car with Wisconsin plates and the plate number is 567SYK, a truck just backed over your car, first thing you would do is say, what is my license plate number? But you see, just by these seven variables, the state that the plate was made in, the numbers on the plate, you are able to identify if this indeed is your car, apart from every car on the face of the earth. And this is just through seven variables. What is so mind-blowing is that Jesus was identified and authenticated, not just by seven prophecies, but by over 300 prophecies that all came true in his life, death, and resurrection, so that we would not make a mistake, so that they would not make a mistake on who was the true promised king of Israel. You know, you might be here and you might be skeptical. You might think to yourself, 
you know, Jesus is just a good guy. He was just a teacher. He's kind of a fairy tale, but he really has no reign over my life. I mean, what would a guy 2,000 years have to do with me today? But as we look at the evidence, what we see is it takes far more faith to deny Jesus is king than it does to believe it because he fulfilled all the prophecies, all the promises to show and to, to indicate and to declare that he is the promised king. And so Palm Sunday declares that Jesus is the promised king. Palm Sunday also reveals to us that Jesus was the popular king. Look at verse 35 with me. It says, And they brought it, the donkey, to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, laying the cloaks on the road was an act of homage and submission. It was kind of like rolling out the red carpet, but it was so much more than that. You see, by laying their cloaks on the ground, it was symbolically communicating that they were putting themselves at his feet, that they were putting themselves under his authority and under his kingship. Verse 37, and as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, the feeding of the 5,000, the sick, the disabled being healed, even dead men being raised to life. Verse 38, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That quotation in verse 38 is a quotation that comes from Psalm 118 in the Old Testament. And it's a song of joyful praise in which the people of God would give thanks to God for his steadfast love in rescuing them and delivering them and in saving them. In that psalm, they would sing to returning war veterans, to people that go out and fight a battle and have a great victory. They would sing that song to celebrate the victory that God had given to them. And they would also sing this song at the time of Passover, as people would remember how God had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. But as we look closer at Psalm 118, there's some interesting differences between what the people say on Palm Sunday and what it says in Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says, save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. And then verse 26, this is what they're quoting. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. I know it's subtle, but do you see the difference between what is written in Psalm 118 and what they were saying on Palm Sunday. You see, in the psalm it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But on Palm Sunday, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. In the other gospel accounts on Palm Sunday, you see people hailing Jesus as king of Israel, the son of David, whom from the, the great king would come. If you're familiar with Palm Sunday stories, you probably also know, as we sang this morning, that the people shouted out, Hosanna. That's actually the first two words in Psalm 118. Hosanna, save us, we pray. We also know that on Palm Sunday, 
Luke doesn't record this, but there was the waving of palm branches. In John 12, 13, it says, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Waving of palm branches was a national symbol used to honor warrior kings after they defeated their enemies. It was such an instrumental part of their civilization that when they minted coins, they actually had palm branches on those coins. And so here you see them waving palm branches as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It would be like us welcoming home war veterans after a great victorious battle, waving our American flag. They come waving palm branches, declaring Christ as king. And so you see Jesus was such a popular king. And it's evidenced by the crowd shouting and rejoicing by their laying down their cloaks, by their crying, Hosanna. It's, it's declared by them calling Jesus king and waving palm branches. But there's one problem with this. Jesus was the popular king for all the wrong reasons. You see, the Jews wanted Jesus to be a political king, one that would bring them political salvation from the Romans, the Romans who were oppressing them and lording over them. If you remember back when Jesus fed the 5,000, we read that after that they, that they were about to come out and take him by force and make him king. But Jesus withdrew. He escaped because he did not come to be a political Messiah. He did not come to free them from the Romans. You see, Jesus had a different mission. He had a greater mission, an unanticipated mission. When I was in high school, I, uh, I played rugby. My parents knew I liked to hit people, and so they let me play rugby. And, uh, and as I was playing rugby, my parents were concerned. They saw how brutal it was, and, and they kind of would ask, are you sure you want to do this? I'm like, yes, I love hitting people. Let me do this. And so I was playing rugby, and it wasn't a school sport. It was a club sport, and so we were kind of renegades in that way, and we weren't supposed to be on, on the property of our school, but there was kind of this field off to the side, and so we went down there. It was kind of hidden, and we were, we were practicing one Saturday morning, and we got to a time where we started scrimmaging, and as we were scrimmaging, I got tackled, and it tore up my Achilles tendon. Um, people were calling me baby and whatever, but it was so much pain. Um, I still remember it to this day. And so I sat on the sidelines, and as practice ended, some guys let me hobble into the back of his pickup truck, and I remember going down the gravel road and all the pumps and all the pain that went with it, and he, he drove me up to the school and dropped me off, and he took off, and so my ride was gone. And so I go into the school, and I hobble downstairs to go to the, to the trainer's room, and I get down there, and I knock on the door, and nobody's there. And so in the hallway, I just start going, Hello? Hello? And nobody responds. There's no cell phones at this time. And so I, I hobble into the locker room and I remember laying down and started to cry because I was all alone. I was, I was in so much pain and I was suffering so badly and I had no idea what to do. I just figured I'm going to lay here till Monday and someone will find me then. And as I sat there, just completely broken, and in pain, I hear someone say, Dan, Dan. And through the doors walks my father. And I can't tell you to this day why he came to the school. I had to ride home. But he walks through. 
And as he walks in, he didn't come in to say, I told you you shouldn't play rugby. He didn't come in and say, why did you let your ride go without you? Come on, knucklehead. He didn't come to condemn me. He came to get me. He came for me. You know, so often we confuse the mission of Jesus. So many times we think that Jesus came to condemn us, but Christ did not come to condemn us. He came to rescue us, to save us, to bring him to himself. In a previous sermon, I looked through the gospel of John and 30 times it tells us what the actual mission of Jesus was. In John 3, 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 10, 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. This is Jesus talking. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And finally, the mission statement of the gospel of John, John 20, 31 says this, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, Jesus' mission was not to create a political revolution or a political salvation. Nor was Jesus' mission to produce apathetic, bored, moralistic followers. Jesus' mission was to make dead people breathe. Jesus' mission was to give them spiritual life, abundant life, eternal life. You see, his mission wasn't to come to condemn. His mission was to come and to save them, not just from the Romans, but from their sin and from death and from Satan. This is such good news for us. Because if Christ just came as a political king, he would have given a limited freedom for a limited time to a limited group of people. But Christ offers freedom to all people forever. Jesus was not the king Israel was hoping for, but he was the king they needed. He was the king their hearts longed for. Jesus is the king who accomplishes the things that no other king can. Jesus may not give you all that you want, but Jesus is the king who satisfies your deepest needs. Jesus is the king who reconnects us to God. Jesus is the king who restores all broken things. Jesus is the king who makes us whole again. And so Jesus was the promised king. Jesus was the popular king. And for that reason, Jesus was a persecuted king. Look at verse 39 with me. It says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees were the religious Jewish leaders of the day, and they didn't like Jesus very much. Jesus often rebuked them, which was shameful to them. But Jesus was also stealing their authority and their popularity. In addition, Jesus was creating friction between them and the Roman government. If you remember at the beginning of Jesus' life, when Jesus was born, the wise men come into town and they come to King Herod and they say, where is he who was born King of the Jews? And do you remember how Herod responded to hearing that there was another king in town? 
He killed every boy in the region of Bethlehem, two years and younger. And so the Pharisees are worried. Here comes Jesus proclaiming himself as king. The people are crowning him as king. How will Rome react to this? You know, this title, King, got Jesus into a lot of trouble that Passion Week. When the Jewish leaders brought Jesus before the Roman government and brought him before Pilate, do you remember what they accused him of? If you flip just a page over in Luke 23, verse 2, it tells us what their accusation was about Jesus. It says, and they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. That is affirmative. And then if you go down to Luke chapter 23, verse 37, we see the Roman soldiers mocking Jesus. And they say, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There, were also, there was also an inscription over him as he hung upon the cross, and it was the inscription of his crime. And the crime was this. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. See, Jesus, by riding in on a donkey, and accepting the praise and worship of the people is forcing the Pharisees, forcing the religious leaders to make a decision. They either have to put their hope in him or they have to hate him. They either have to king him or they have to kill him. They either have to crown him or they have to crucify him. They could not remain neutral. You know, it's so interesting here because they called Jesus teacher. That was too neutral for Jesus. He said, either crown me or crucify me. You have to make a move. You have to decide what to do with this man, Jesus. I met a new friend this week, and he was telling me his story. And part of his story was after he got married a few years, his wife got a horrific disease from inhaling uh, cleaner agents um, from, from cleaning as part of her job. And what happened is it started to deteriorate the inside of her body. And they went to doctor after doctor after doctor. And finally, one doctor said, take her back home to be with her family. There's nothing else we can do. Take her home to be with her family until she passes. Well, they returned home. And, and when they returned home to their home city, they bumped into a woman they had known before they left. And, and they were surprised to see her because this woman was in stage four cancer. And so they thought surely she had passed by this time. But as they were talking to her, they found out that she had been healed and surprised by the results. They asked her, how were you healed? And she said that she went to a naturopathic doctor. And so with nothing to lose, this couple decided to go and visit the doctor. They had very little hope of, of anything working out. She was very sick. They went in, they filled out the sheets and she checked almost every box of everything that was wrong with her. And they, they assumed that they would give the sheet and the same response would come back. Sorry, there's nothing we can do. So they handed in the, the sheets and, and they met with the doctor. And the doctor looked at them and he said, you know, I've seen this all before and I can cure you. But you have to follow my instructions. We have to detox your body. You will be tremendously sick for six months, but after that you will be well. 
If you can imagine sitting in that room with them and that doctor, at that moment in time, they had to make a decision. They had to make a move. They could not remain neutral. They either needed to write off that doctor as quackers and walk away as just a lunatic, or they had to entrust themselves to him. They had to make a move. They had to make a decision. They had to make a play. Needless to say, 20 years later, the woman is healthy and strong. Now, I know this natural pathic discussion can raise a lot of good conversation, but please don't get distracted by that because there is a more serious matter at hand for us today. You see, all of us will die, even you. It's not a matter if you will die. It's a matter of when you will die. And the question isn't, will I die? But what happens when you die? See, Jesus says there are only two options. Either you die in your sin, you die in your flesh, and the eternal wrath and justice of God comes upon you, or you trust in Jesus as your king, and you will enter eternal bliss under the glorious kingship of Jesus. You see, Christ came as king, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Christ came to earth as king to not wear a crown of gold, but to wear a crown of thorns, to be beaten, to be spitten upon, to be humiliated, to be crucified on our behalf, to take the penalty for our sin, to pay the wages of our sin, which is death, and then to be raised from the dead to fulfill his kingly purpose, to give you life and to give me life with him for all eternity. Palm Sunday forces our hand. Palm Sunday forces us to make a decision. Jesus is someone that you cannot remain neutral to because he claims to be king of your life. You must crown him as king of your life or you must crucify him and dismiss him as a lunatic or as a liar. He cannot be simply a good teacher. You cannot remain neutral to him. You must crown him as your king. As we read on, I love Jesus' response to the Pharisees. They say, rebuke your disciples, teacher. Tell them, stop worshiping you as king. And Jesus more or less says, if you shut them up, creation will cry out. Now, this is, this is a very sophisticated statement, and there's a lot to it, but I'll just give you the simple explanation. When Adam and Eve in the garden sinned against God, not only did brokenness come into their life, but brokenness came over all of creation. And so not only did people look forward to the redemption that Christ was going to bring, but all of creation, even the rocks, look forward to the redemption that would come through this promised king. In Romans 8, 22, we read, the whole creation, along with those born of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait for redemption. You see, Jesus' scope of redemption included your soul, but also included all of creation. And so Jesus comes as a king, not just to redeem people, but to redeem everything. And so when Jesus says, you can keep them quiet, but the rocks will cry out, he's reminding us that he came to restore all the broken things of the world, even all of creation. Jesus is the promised king your heart longs for. Jesus is the popular king 
your heart longs for. Jesus is the persecuted king your heart longs for. That article in the New York Post by Mike Vaccaro, again entitled, very interestingly, King, the nickname that comes with a steep price. It continues. It says, King is not an easy nickname because it all but requires you to be flawless or else. And then he goes on to list out, he goes, Lundquist, this hockey goalie, says, for example, the hockey goalie was otherworldly during most of NHL playoffs, but there were those pair of six-goal aberrations. Then the five-hole goal softy that wrecked game seven against the Lightning. And then he goes on and says, well, there was no shortage of critics who pronounced with extra glee seeing the king derobed. And then he goes on to point out Hernandez, a baseball player. He said, who Friday night in Houston allowed eight runs in third inning, translating to a 216 ERA. And he says, and yes, king jokes were abundant and they were abiding. And then he goes on, he says, LeBron James, question mark. Well, should he pull off what he is halfway to pulling off? He may also earn the right to king exclusivity. But if he doesn't, well, you know the headline writers will be falling over each other to declare the king is dead. And then this final statement, long live the king. You see, this article points out something that is extremely profound, that every human king will be derobed, that every human king will be flawed, that every human king will in the end die. But you know what? That is completely okay because we were not made for human kings. We were made for a divine king, the divine king who would love us and rescue us and extend his dominion over us. You see, the most glorious thing is that although all of our hearts long for a king, there is a king who longs for us. And he came to die and raise from the dead, to win us to himself. This Palm Sunday, do the hard work of dethroning all other kings that cannot satisfy your soul and crown Christ, king of your heart, king of creation, king over all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come and that you have declared yourself king to bring your redemption to win us, to get us sinners because you love us and you delight in us and you long for us. Lord, as we turn to your table, to this Passover meal, to the Lord's table, we are reminded in tangible, physical ways that you would do anything to bring us back to yourself. Even go to the cross on our behalf. And so Lord, as we take these elements, we pray, Lord, that you would remind us of your great love for us that you came as a king to lay down your life for your people, that you might bring them to yourself now and for all eternity. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.